This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. This is the outline for our night. Um, we would like to take you know, the time to tell you what we are doing here at UCSF and how we do it and why we do it. We would like to describe to you what the radiologist does in this process. Now, who is the radiologist and why we're here? And to help me, we're going to have Matt Cooperberg and John Kurhanwitz. I could be talking about their careers for now a long time here, but now I'll mention two little things. Matt Cooperberg received a, an award from the Urological Association, American Urological Association. It's called the Golden Cystoscope, and it's given to a young person based on their collaborations with the field in the first 10 years of the career. So he's done a lot in the field of prostate cancer. John Kurhanowitz recently received a Distinguished Investigator Award from the Academy of Radiology Research, and very, very few of the accomplished people in our field get it. Uh, more important than that, he's my mentor, and in public here, I would like to thank you. We'll finish then with some questions and answers um, so if you do have any questions by the end of this particular talk, I'll ask you to hold off on them, and in the end we'll have you know, a more informal discussion. All right, what's the mission of UCSF? Now, we want to advance the health worldwide through permanent biomedical research, graduate-level education, life science and health professions, and provide the best health care we can. And in order to achieve that, we have to look at education research and patient care as a single thing. Things overlap. As an example here, just talking about research, we have basic research, we have the first human studies following basic research, then we have clinical studies, and we look at those in practice. And these feed to each other. So we are constantly exchanging information to get to the point we want to get. That's why we work with a multidisciplinary team. But to prostate and prostate cancer. So very first thing, what is the prostate? So the prostate is a small gland. It's a male reproductive organ. And its main function is to produce components of the semen. It's located just inferior to the bladder. So here is the bladder. This is the prostate. This is the urethra, which will take the urine to the base of the penis here. These are the seminal vasculars and ejaculatory ducts. When you look at imaging, they don't look as nice as on a drawing. This is the T2-weighted image. This is what it looks like on the axial plane. So axial plane is a transverse cut here. We can look at them in different planes. Just an example here. This image represents this image and also looking at it on FOSS. So very briefly, prostate cancer. Before we talk about prostate cancer, a word about pro uh, cancer overall. This is data from the American Cancer Society. And when you look at the number of cases that we get every day, there are 4,600 new cancers diagnosed in the United States and 1,700 deaths of cancer. If you look at the lifetime risk of developing prostate cancer, 13%, and of dying of prostate cancer, 2.5%. This is from the get-go, without any other risk factors being assessed, the entire population. Now, we can look at the numbers that are expected for 2017, again, from the American Cancer Society. 
160,000 cases, and then they list 27,000 deaths. And the first temptation is to actually create a graph like this. That means 14% of people die of cancer, and that's incorrect. Luckily, the death of prostate cancer has remained relatively stable for a long time, and then since PSA era decreased. Now, what happens in reality is that we diagnose more prostate cancers, but we also diagnose them in an early stage and treating them. So what is the actual survival rate of prostate cancer? 99% in five years. So that's good news. This is a graph that Dr. Carroll, who's chairman of urology, let me use, and it shows a summary of screening with PSA. And all I want to point out here is that once you screen patients, you do a lot of biopsies, and you're going to have complications related to the diagnosis that are made and to the procedure itself. So we may have you know, bladder issues. We may have complications of biopsy like infection. We'll get back to this in a little while. What that actually shows us is that we are over-diagnosing prostate cancer. So we are able to detect prostate cancers, but those are prostate cancers that will not really impact the patient's life. Now, a patient will die of something else, die with the prostate cancer rather than of prostate cancer. But once you detect them, you do something about it. So you over-treat them as well. We're treating cancers that don't need to be treated. When you talk to patients, now, these are the two questions that usually come up in the beginning. Now, do I have cancer, and is my cancer bad? So what do you want to do? Now, what is our goal here? Now, we want to diagnose only the cancer that need treatment because they will have an impact on the patient's life. We want to improve treatment and management decisions. So once the diagnosis is made, we want to help to manage that patient and we want to minimize the risks related to these treatments. There's another thing we would like to do, and when cure is not possible, we want to try to detect the tumor spread at an early time point in order to be able to control that cancer and preserve life expectancy. We play a key role in that process. Very first step, a man gets a PSA that's abnormal. And before diagnosis, which is typically the biopsy, we will be there. After diagnosis, so after the biopsy, but before treatment, we will be there. During treatment and after treatment. So we play a role at all stages of care of men with suspected or known prostate cancer. We can use MR imaging, as in the upper corner. We can use CT scans. We can use bone scans and other forms of PET imaging. Now, I'll talk mostly about MRI here. There's a reason, and there are several reasons, but no. One, it's a non-invasive modality. It has no radiation involved with it, which is a major issue, especially when you're going to image a lot of patients a lot of times. This little link here, by the way, is a short two-minute video by one of my colleagues, Benier, and it describes how NMR imaging processes. What, what is MR imaging? How we get images? So if you're interested, you can get to that little link there. Now this is another reason why I'll focus on MR imaging too. We have a CT scan image, we have a transrectal ultrasound image, and we have an MR image. These are different patients. All of them have cancer in their glands. Now I, I don't know where it is on the CT. We just can't see it. On ultrasound, the arrow points to the finding. 
and we have the arrow pointing to the MRI. Now, I grant you that the MR lesion is bigger, but it's much more visible. But in addition to that, we have other techniques that we couple on MR imaging. We often talk about multi-parametric MRI. So it's not one test. In reality, there are several tests that are acquired at the same time using the same machine. So we look at all these images at the same time. Now, another reason I'll talk about MR, it's this. These are the publications, research that has been done focused on MR imaging. And you can see there is an exponential increase in the number of publications in the last 10 years or so. A lot of this driven by urology rather than radiology because they now accept it and they want to use it because it's helping patients. And this is a graph of our cases here. You can see there's also an exponential increase. And by the end of September, we had already done 1,600 um, scans. So we're going to get to 2,000 scans easily. Now, we have a lot of experience with MR imaging. We have over 200 publications. And these are publications that are done in conjunction with urology, radiation oncology, and radiology, among others. So we have a little bit to tell you about it. So back to the questions. We, diagnose, we want to diagnose prostate cancer that need treatment because they will have an impact. So one of the things that we can show based on the data we have is that MRI, when negative, typically represents a patient that is unlikely to have a bad or an aggressive cancer. So what, do, what is a bad or aggressive cancer? It's a cancer that has a Gleason pattern 4. Gleason pattern is a histological classification. So following a biopsy or, or the resection of the specimen, they'll categorize the tumors using the Gleason score. A Gleason score 4 is the one that we worry about. So when the MR is negative, it's unlikely that that tumor is present. So this brings up some questions. Now, do men that have a negative MRI need a biopsy? So you have a PSA, you get an MR, and there's nothing there. Do I need the biopsy? Now, do men that have a known cancer but have a negative MR need immediate treatment? Because you're not seeing anything. No, this bad cancer may not be there. Now, these are questions that we don't have answers yet, and we're working on it. We're developing research. We need to get the time to do it. We need to get money to do it. We need to get resources to do it. But we're working on it. Let's go back to that, why it matters. It matters because of this again. Now, if you do a biopsy that's not needed, now out of 1,000 men, you're going to have eight complications. You're going to have complications of treatment, too. Now, patients may actually develop impotence or incontinence following treatment. We want to avoid those complications. Now, because not everything is perfect in the world, there are problems. And we also know that somewhere between 5 and 20% of men that have a negative MR do harbor a tumor that we would consider an aggressive or a bad tumor based on the Gleason score. Now, the question is, do invisible tumors impact the lives of the patients? Now, can these tumors be followed until they become visible? Now, these are much more challenging. Now, these will require studies with multiple institutions, long-term follow-up, large number of patients. And again, we're trying to do it. Active surveillance. Because we know a lot of the tumors will not have an impact on the patient's life and that treatments may, active surveillance is one way to manage patients that are classified as being low risk. And usually what we do, we get a PSA followed by B, a biopsy, and then we get a diagnosis established. 
This patient will be followed by serial PSA, and then eventually we'll get another biopsy after a year or two. If during this follow-up, PSA starts going up, the biopsy will be brought earlier in time to see if this tumor has progressed or if it has been mischaracterized initially and it's indeed a bad or aggressive tumor. So, what if at this time point here, cancer was invisible? And at this point here, instead of going to the biopsy, you get an MRI, and it's still invisible. So on imaging, it has not progressed. Or if it's visible, there is a determined progression. Perhaps the visible tumor should get that MRI got a biopsy. We don't know the answer for the invisible one. So another line of study and an important question to answer. Now, the flip side of this is that tumors that are positive and are bad are very positive. This is an example of three patients. This is a patient with a very clear abnormality on two exams. This is going to be a bad tumor. And two other scans done um, in patients that have cancer, but negative scans. Now, this is definitely a bad tumor. Now, on imaging, we use this modality this PIRED score classification, this scheme to classify lesions as being more or less suspicious. And a PIRED's 4 or 5 is the suspicious one. So now we got a scan, and there is a lesion there. Can we target those areas to prove that they are bad tumors? Can we place a needle in them? And the answer is yes. We can do two different things. One of them is the MR ultrasound fusion biopsy. And what is done here is... We take the MR and we fuse it with the ultrasound image. This target here is based on the ultrasound findings. And the neurologist or the person who performed the, the, the biopsy can place the needle right in the target to characterize that particular finding. So yes, we can place the needle right at that exact location. The second option is to perform this biopsy inside the MR magnet. So the patient will be laying inside the magnet. We're going to use this special device to do the biopsy, and the needle is then directed to that finding. So we know we're going to be there because we can see it as we do it. Now, both of these techniques are highly accurate and have been shown to identify the tumors that are high-grade more commonly, more often, than when you do with transvector ultrasound only. Now, the other question that arises, can we target only these areas? When you do a transrectal ultrasound biopsy, and some of you may have done that, it's not one specimen, one needle. No, we do 6, 7, 8, 14, 16. There are saturation procedures where you do 50 biopsies in the gland. Can we do only that area? If that is the area that you're worried about, can we do only that? And beyond that, can we treat only that area? So I'm going to take a little side tour here and talk about focal therapy. And we're going to, so what is focal therapy? First, we want to control the cancer, minimizing the complications. If the, clan, the cancer is in one location, can I treat that location instead of treating the whole gland? And we're going to talk about a little bit of the history of breast cancer. So Dr. Halstead in the 1900s proposed radical mastectomy to treat these patients. Now, time changed. It took a little while, but time changed the things. In the 60s and 70s, Someone decided, really, no, we need to do that? Can we do something a little bit more conservative? So we went to simple mastectomy and radiation therapy, and finally today a lot of women undergo lumpectomy. 
can we take that to the prostate? Now, there are problems. Um, one of them is ultrasound is the usual technique to perform those treatments, and it's not the adequate technique to target a particular area of the gland. The other thing is PSA. How do we follow cancer? Typically, we will get PSA and see if the PSA is going up, and if the PSA goes up, we're worried about it. Now, you took a little bite of the gland off, so we don't know what the PSA means anymore. We lose that reference. And then finally, we have to do biopsies to try to identify the cancer. So again, we're going to be using the transrectal ultrasound, which has limitations. But we have MR. There's the MR trifecta. It can actually be used to target. I showed that with the biopsies. We can use to follow it. If there are changes from the pre- and post-treatment, that suggests that disease is changing. And we can use that to target that particular area. Now, going back now to the questions. We want to diagnose treatment only, uh, diagnose cancer the only treatment. And we were talking about the PIRED scores. Now, the problem, again, is there are variation when people assign these scores. Now, if I assign them and I ask 10 other people to assign, there will be variations. So we need to improve this. And the expected rates of the bad cancers per score are not yet determined. The good news is that we are leading a large study of about 20 institutions all over the world to try to figure this out. So this is underway. It will take another year or so to actually get those results, but they will be out there. And with these results, we will adjust the model for consistency. In addition, we are planning a study to investigate if we can do MRI target biopsy, um, uh, focal therapy in the scanner. So now news coming, but no, still will take time. The second thing was we wanted to improve treatment and management decisions. And I mentioned that we can do that using imaging in the biopsy setting and the active surveillance setting and focal therapy. But in reality, we do provide information that's useful as to assist you know, patients and clinicians to decide about definitive therapy, which is usually radical prostatectomy and radiation therapy. For instance, if disease has spread beyond the gland, but is still localized to the region of the prostate. about disease that has already metastasized. Now, we want to identify that at an early stage. So this was covered in a prior talk, at least in part by Dr. Hope and Flavel, but it talks about molecular imaging. And I want to mention at least this modality here, which is PSMA-PAT. We can do it with CT or MRI. So what happens here is that this PSMA, this prostate-specific membrane antigen, is present in the tumor in a greater number, in a greater volume than the normal cell. So knowing this, we can actually take this PSMA, couple it with something that we can image using PAT, nuclear medicine, typically gallium and fluoride agents, and highlight that finding. So when you look in this now graphical representation, we see that the tumor is now more yellow than the normal cell, and that allows to detect the abnormality. So here's a case where we have a very large lesion here showing uptake with that PSMA. Now, this is a very large lesion on MR, and it's very easy to find it, and that's not the point. The point here is that this patient has also, if I can change the slide here, there, also has this little area here, 
This is a lymph node. So this is disease that's metastasized to a lymph node. And no one would have called this here, at least not have called it with confidence. This is a metastatic lymph node. Here, it's very clear and very obvious. This is another example. A patient has a very tiny abnormality here on the CT, and I guarantee you that radiologists would not have called that had they not seen this. Similarly, the bone lesion, it's not that obvious. This is callable, but this is very callable. This is very easy to see, and it's a very good agent. Another one, tiny little finding, positive pat, MPSMA pat. Now, my favorite case is this one. These three scans were done at about the same time. This is the PSMA, very clearly abnormal. This is a bone scan, which is what is recommended by the current guidelines. Now, high-risk patients get a bone scan, and it's negative. And the CT scan, which is also recommended, not for the bones, for the lymph nodes, is negative. It highlights how good this new modality is. This Brings me to a close. I have only 20 minutes, and I went a little bit past it. But again, to highlight, UCSF radiologists are members of a multidisciplinary team. We're going to have urologists speaking um, next. We are involved in all stages of the care of men with known or suspected prostate cancer. Now, we have leading uh, uh, cutting-edge research. Dr. Kohanitz will talk about that. And we are heavily engaged in education and training of the future generation of physicians, and not necessarily radiologists, but urologists, radiation oncologists, and other clinicians. Thank you. All right, good evening. Uh, my name is Matt Cooperberg. I'm a urologist and urologic oncologist here at UCSF. And uh, what I'm going to give you this evening is a clinician's perspective on emerging imaging tests as they relate to the broader field of emerging biomarkers, uh, meaning new tests that are evolving to improve the way we take care of men with prostate cancer. Uh, these are my disclosures. We do work with a number of companies that make biomarkers here. We've done a lot of the development work on, on some of the markers that are now on the market. Um, and I also want to say at the outset that I use a lot of the tests that Dr. Westphalen and Dr. Kainowitz are going to uh, have talked about and are going to talk about. And the reason I'm saying that up front is the perspective that I'm going to give you tonight uh, may sound a little bit more skeptical. And the reason for that is I'm a clinician. I'm also a health services researcher, meaning I spend a lot of uh, my research time figuring out how we take care of prostate cancer and how we should take care of prostate cancer. And there's a few steps in getting any technology really out there in the real world. There's the research phase. There's the phase where it makes sense for patients at a top-level cancer center like this one. And then there's the phase where it makes sense in the real world in community practice. And, you know, in, in, there are certainly cases where uh, the cart gets a little bit before the horse in terms of technologies being adopted in settings which are not really ready to, um, to adopt them and to use them effectively. Uh, with that said, um, I want to highlight, uh, and I, I know uh, Antonio already talked about this, prostate cancer, just to uh, reinforce the big picture problem here, is the most common cancer diagnosed among men in the U.S. And one of the most common causes of cancer mortality, it just this year fell to number three from number two. Um, and the mortality rates have been falling year by year by year. And yet, in 2012, we had this recommendation from the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, which makes uh, screening recommendations to primary care physicians in the U.S. that we should not screen anybody ever for prostate cancer. 
Um, and the question, of course, always comes up, you know, how did this happen? And the answer is very much that it's our fault. And when I say our fault, I'm speaking very broadly. Uh, primary care doctors have done a pretty poor job targeting screening to the men that will benefit most. And urologists and radiation oncologists and other uh, cancer-oriented clinicians have done a pretty poor job targeting treatments to the men who will benefit most. And the fundamental problem is that prostate cancer is an extremely heterogeneous disease. The word cancer we use for an ex exceptionally broad spectrum of biology ranging from completely indolent tumors that you would never have known you had over the course of your whole life to rapidly aggressive malignancies. And that's true even within the spectrum of prostate cancer, cancer starting in the prostate. And it's useful to spend just a minute when we talk about imaging and biomarkers to remind you of the, the broader context here, which is this spectrum of biology. And when we screen for anything, whether it's prostate cancer, bladder cancer, uh, breast cancer, uh, colon cancer, you imagine a screening test at a certain interval. Um, and there are many cancers that we don't find even with screening. If you live long enough, if you live into your 80s, almost every man has a couple of cancer cells in the prostate. You don't need to know about those. It's better not to know about those. Then there's a broad pool of cancers that we find with screening, with PSA testing, that we can find when they are confined to the prostate in this you know, so-called curable state. We can cure them with surgery and radiation, but had we never found them, it never would have made any difference. And these are men that we say are overdiagnosed. Then there's the ones that really matter. These are the ones that we can find, we can treat them, and we can cure them before they progress to what would be a lethal disease. If you get to the top of the screen here, you've died of the cancer. If you get to the right, you've died of something else. And then finally, there are rare tumors that progress very, very quickly. This is more like a pancreatic cancer. We are never going to fix these with screening, but they're rare in the setting of prostate cancer. Um, and this uh, separation in terms of the different prognostic categories of prostate cancer really is at the root of the problem when it comes to screening. We need to make sure that we find these, find the rabbits, and treat them without harming the turtle population uh, too much. You know, there was the concern that the turtles were becoming an endangered species uh, and too much harm was being done to them in the, in the pursuit of the rabbits. And just to emphasize what has happened since this D recommendation that we should stop screening, prostate cancer incidence rates, how many we find a year, are now at the lowest rates since the 1980s. This is not because there's less prostate cancers, because we're just not finding them. Um, and in the meantime, the mortality drop here, this is, this is prostate cancer here, uh, mortality rates, which have been falling every year, actually in 2014 leveled out for the first time. This is the first time in 25 years that we did not see prostate cancer mortality drop. And this is probably in part because we are no longer finding the rabbits and curing them when we can. Um, so, you know, what do we do about this? How do we answer the task force? Well, it's incumbent on urologists and other treating clinicians that we only treat the cancers that need treatment. And we need to adopt a risk-stratified management approach, meaning that men with low-risk disease should be on active surveillance, which means we don't treat the cancer immediately. Uh, we follow it carefully with PSA tests, with imaging tests, with repeat biopsies, and treat if we see signs of progression. The window of cure for prostate cancer is usually measurable in years or in decades, not in months. Uh, men with higher risk disease do well with surgery or radiation therapy or some combination of the two. And actually, relatively few men with localized disease should be getting systemic treatments like hormones alone. Now, active surveillance has been a major aspect of what we do here at UCSF in urology since the early 1990s. We were one of the first centers to really be arguing for this approach for men with low-risk disease. And now, with the, you know, with the time passing and the word finally getting out into the broader community, active surveillance in 2017, I'm happy to say, is finally standard of care. We have multiple guidelines from the Clinical Oncology Society, from the Urology Society, from 
radiation oncology. Everybody now is basically on the same page that for all men with what we call very low-risk disease and most men with low-risk disease, active surveillance should be the standard of care. And like I said, things are finally changing in community practice. These are low-risk cancers uh, diagnosed in a registry called Capture, which we have run here since the 1990s, tracking men treated at urology practices all across the country. And year by year, these are five-year increments from the 1990s on forward. Up through uh, 2010, the rate of surveillance for low-risk disease was always under 10%. Well, now finally it's up to 40%, just in the current decade. And in the meantime, we're seeing more aggressive treatment, more surgery for higher risk cancers. And again, this is completely appropriate. So we're finally seeing uh, the risk adaptive management strategy getting out of the academic environments like this one into real world practice. Now, 40% is still too low. In Sweden, other parts of the world is about 80%, and that's probably where we should be. But it's a big step in the right direction. And the fact is, we can do a pretty good job risk-stratifying prostate cancer. You will hear these statements from the task force and from other sort of PSA haters out there that we can't tell the rabbits from the turtles, we don't know which ones need to be treated. It's simply false. Uh, We have known for decades, literally, which risk factors matter. And the basic things like PSA, the blood test, the Gleason grade, which is how the cells look under the microscope, and the extent of cancer, how many of the biopsy cores are positive, can give us a very good estimation of the likelihood that this could potentially be a lethal prostate cancer. This is the CAPRA score, which is a 0 to 10 score. We developed it here in 2005, and it's been validated on four continents and tens of thousands of patients now, and it does a very good job, about 80% accuracy um, in risk stratifying men from almost zero likelihood of actually dying of prostate cancer up to nearly 50% over 15 years after diagnosis. So why am I spending all this time in an imaging and biomarker talk setting the scene? Because the fact is the bar is actually pretty high. If you want to bring a new test to market, a blood test, urine test, imaging test, it has to beat the existing standard. And the existing standard is really not bad. We can do a pretty good job with the tools available at the point of care today in every practice in the country in risk stratifying prostate cancer. And yet, of course, we want to do better than 80%, and that's where the excitement is in terms of biomarkers and imaging. And this space is heating up extremely quickly. And we've gone from basically having PSA Gleason score and stage to having more novel tests than we honestly know what to do with in routine practice. And there are new tests for almost every single clinical decision point along the way from should you get a PSA, should you get a biopsy, should you get a second biopsy if the first one was negative, should you get treated. If you get surgery, should you get radiation after surgery? And if you've got an advanced prostate cancer, how should we manage it? Uh, So all along the way, for each of these decision points, we've got new blood tests, urine tests, uh, tissue-based tests where we look at uh, gene expression and things in the prostate cancer tissue. Um, And there are more approved every single year. And imaging tests really play in the same sandbox. The goals are very much the same with multiparametric MRI and to an extent with PMA PSMA-based PET-CT, as they are with some of these other tests. And one of the most interesting questions, um, as I said, active surveillance is becoming standard of care. Uh, But active surveillance means periodic PSA tests, and it means having to undergo repeat biopsies every couple years, potentially for many, many years, and that potentially means many biopsies. Biopsies are uncomfortable. They have about a 1% to 2% chance of infection. Most men would prefer to avoid them if possible. So one of our major interests now is can we use markers and imaging tests to actually tailor active surveillance uh, to figure out which cancers do need 
really do need the annual or biannual biopsies and which can be followed from a safer distance. And I want to stress the point that none of these tests is indicated for all cases today in 2017, especially outside of the academic setting. Uh, some of these tests are marketed very heavily to community urologists who really have no idea what to do with them. Um, and frankly, multiparametric MRI as well, uh, in a place like this, which has been doing MRI research since the 1980s virtually, uh, it's a fantastic test. In community practice, where the radiologists may do one or two of these a month as part of a general practice, uh, we see these scans come in from the outside, and they're often not worth the cost of the CD that they're scanned on, uh, let alone the, the report. Um, and, you know, that sounds flip, but it's actually quite true. Uh, multiparametric MRI, as, as you've heard and we'll hear again, is actually a very subtle, complex test to read. You know, most radiologists can do a CAT scan of the kidney and give us a pretty consistent impression as to whether there's a kidney cancer there. But reading a, a multiparametric MRI of the prostate is much more difficult. So just to stress a couple points, and again, these, these tests can be used either before or after the diagnosis of prostate cancer. And to emphasize a couple points, any marker that we want to bring to clinical practice, whether, again, it's a blood test, a urine test, or an imaging test, has to beat some kind of multivariable gold standard. So in the, in the setting, for example, of a man who's got a high PSA trying to decide whether or not to get a biopsy done, uh, it's not good enough to just say, well, we can improve on the PSA, because we already have these multivariable tools that look at the PSA in the context of age, race, family history, and other variables, and do a pretty good job. Um, not a perfect job, but do a reasonable job at predicting the outcome of the biopsy. And we use these in clinical practice to help men decide whether or not they should get a biopsy. So if you want to do better with a blood test or an imaging test, you've got to beat not just PSA, but some real multivariable test. Uh, and these tests have to be validated very, very carefully. The methodology in terms of how the tests actually get studied and, and tested and validated, the details matter extremely here. Um, and finally, the other point, which um, I hope I've already made clear, is that our goal is not to find more prostate cancer. Our goal is to find the potentially lethal prostate cancers and find them when they're still within that window of cure. And frankly, the fewer non-lethal ones we find, the better. So the more rabbits we can catch while ignoring the turtles, let alone treating them, over-treating them, the better off. So there's a number of tests that are on the market now for this space of should we do a biopsy. PCA3 is a urine test. There's two blood tests, which we've done some studies on here. Uh, Select MDX is a urine test. There's another blood test and then multiparametric MRI. And these are all tests in this space of should we do a biopsy. And some of them, uh, Select MDX, for example, this is a urine test. It's got about a 98% negative predictive value for high-grade disease, meaning if you get this test and it comes back negative, you can tell the guy with very good confidence do not worry that you've got an undiagnosed rabbit-looking tumor. There may be a turtle there, but we don't necessarily care about that. Now, the positive predictive value may not be that high, meaning just because the test is positive does not mean you've got an aggressive cancer. Uh, but tests like this, we really think, are getting us toward the notion of being able to uh, rule men out for biopsy who don't need it and won't benefit and are just being exposed to the risks without the benefits. And this is where we want to get to. So this is what we do with the, with the clinical parameters today. So PSA, age, uh, race, and, and family history. Uh, we actually have, have tools that, that give us a display like this in the office. And this is the likelihood based on, you know, we punch in the numbers into a, into a website in just a few seconds, and it gives us the likelihood of low-grade disease. I'm sorry, uh, sorry, of a negative biopsy, of low-grade disease, and of 
High grade disease. Now it's interesting. The folks that I know, the folks that actually designed this calculator, and when they initially proposed it, the idea was the negative biopsy were going to be the yellow faces because they don't have cancer, but they just went through a completely unnecessary biopsy. The these guys here were actually going to be the unhappy red faces because now we've overdiagnosed the low risk cancer, the turtles, and they're going to have to go through multiple biopsies. They might be overtreated. You know, these are the ones who we've really done a disservice. These guys should be happy because we just found a high grade cancer and we saved their life. You know, needless to say, it didn't really fly that way with the focus groups when they, when they, uh, when they rolled this out. Um, but I want to stress that again, that the, that the purpose of this whole endeavor is finding these guys. Um, after diagnosis, the same principles really apply. So after a diagnosis of prostate cancer, when we're trying to make a decision about whether or not we should go forward with treatment, uh, the point is not just can we beat the Gleason score or can we beat the PSA. The point is can we beat a true multivariable tool like that CAPRA score that I showed you, um, and can we do better? Can we push the accuracy beyond 80%? And in many cases, we now can. So there are three tests in the market, for example, that look at the prostate cancer tissue that we've already taken out during the biopsy anyway, and we're looking at gene expression. In other words, which bits of genetic code are turned on and turned off when they should be off, they should be on. The more of those little genetic switches are inappropriately flipped, the more aggressive the cancer. And these are actually giving us now a refined uh, look at prostate cancer prognosis and risk. Um, and all of these have actually been shown to improve to some extent on the CAPR score or on various other multivariable tools. Uh, the question, and what is still very much unclear, is how we necessarily actually use these tests in practice at the point of care. Because none of them tells us what to do. It just gives us a little bit more of a refined estimate of risk. And this is just one example on the, uh, the Oncotype test. Um, the, the readout here is while it looks like you've got a low-risk prostate cancer, if we took you to surgery today, what are the odds that we would find an aggressive prostate cancer? And we can make these predictions based on the clinical information alone, that, that CAPR score. If we add the genetic test, we add the test from the RNA expression, we can shift these predictions up and down quite substantially based on the score. And this is kind of the way we think these things should be used, but again, it's not necessarily how they actually get rolled out in community practice. And it's important to stress that there is no such thing as a binary prostate cancer test. Everybody wants this, and if it turns blue, you take out the prostate, but the reality is there are no pregnancy tests for prostate cancer. There is no such thing as a positive or negative MRI or a positive or negative uh, Biomarker, these are all shades of gray. Every prostate cancer diagnosis is a shade of gray. And what the tests help us get to is, is it a darker or lighter shade. Uh, so just talk a little bit more detail on you know, some of the perspectives on, on MR. You know, the pyrite system, which Antonio's talked about, is really intended to let the whole world speak the same language about MRI. But we're losing a lot of information along the way. You know, the patient spends often 40 minutes in the magnet um, with the loud noises and a balloon on the backside and the whole rest of it. And the magnet stores an incredible amount of, da of data from this MRI machine. That then gets converted into a picture for the radiologist to read. And you basically just get a couple numbers at the end of the day um, that in turn get collapsed to this one to five scale. And then what do we do when it finally comes to the urology practice? Well, we dichotomize it. We say one to three is OK and four to five is, is uh, is a problem. And we're losing a huge amount of information 
along the way. So there are a number of efforts going on now in the Department of Radiology here and elsewhere to do a better job with all this. Machine learning is all over the news for all kinds of applications. There's at least four big companies uh, in the Bay Area that are really interested in this, and there's opportunities like this to do more with the information that we're already getting. Um, and the other problem here, and this, this really is, is the, gets to the point that I made earlier about is this ready for prime time outside of academic centers like this, uh, there's a lot of inner observer variation in reading MRI and in reading pathology for that matter. Uh, there's one study, there's not that many studies that have been done on this question, but uh, from the NCI, which has one of the uh, leading MRI centers around, um, did a nice study where they had two or three different radiologists read the same MRI. Uh, H is the high-volume prostate-focused radiologist. M is a just standard you know, NCI, good radiologist, but not necessarily pro- prostate-oriented. Um, and overall, agreement was not great, 58%. If you compare the high-volume guys with the high-volume guys, it was about 70%. But the general practice radiologists, it was barely over 50% agreement. Now, things are a little better if you restrict it to the PIRADS-4, which means the aggressive cancers. So there's a little more agreement in calling bad when it is bad. Uh, But nonetheless, these numbers are nowhere near where they need to be for this to be a standard of care community practice test in 2017 outside of centers like this one. And by the way, the same problems apply to pathology. So we all think of pathology as the gold standard, but reading the Gleason score, low grade versus high grade, can be quite subtle. And there's a lot of art to reading these, just like there is to reading uh, radiology tests. Um, and we're part of this multicenter consortium here where pathologists have been trading cases for a number of years. Um, so these are some of the best pathologists in the country. If they think it's an easy case, their agreement from one pathologist to another is about 76%. But the minute they call it hard, drops to 27%. So one pathologist will always call this Gleason 3, another will always call it Gleason 4. And it's, and it's really not that easy. If you drill down into the details of why there are you know, arguments about 3 versus 4, you understand where it, there is no black and white answer here, any more than there is in the MRI or in the biomarker. Um, so you know, like I said, one, our goal with surveillance, where we're hoping to get to with, with markers and MRI as part of the solution is to start to do a better job tailoring the active surveillance population. We know that of every 100 guys we put on surveillance here, about half will get treated within three to five years. Um, But a lot of those don't need immediate treatment. There's probably only about 10% of men that we think are active surveillance candidates who really have some undiagnosed high-grade cancer that we can find with the markers or the MRI, uh, where it's a real surprise, and we're really glad that we did the marker at that moment, and they need to go straight to immediate treatment. Um, Then there's probably a big pool, and my guess, this is a total guess, is about half the men need to be on the standard surveillance protocol because eventually they'll probably need something done in the next five or ten years. But then there's a big pool of men that we would really like to be able to tell, go home, forget about this. We shouldn't have even called this cancer in the first place. It's got no biologic hallmarks of cancer. You're going to be fine. Um, And convert those men to more of what we used to call watchful waiting, meaning not doing anything for it. And our hope is that both markers, uh, like the, uh, the RNA tests, the, ge- the genetic tests, and tools like MRI, should help us get to a paradigm like this. Uh, the markers, moreover, once we get past this kind of single score for prognosis, will help, will help us, I think, try to start to select treatments for men at more of a truly precision medicine level, meaning... For the men that have a recurrent cancer after surgery or radiation therapy, they tend to go on hormonal therapy and then potentially get chemotherapy later down the road. But 
you know, there's no question that some cancers would actually respond better to chemo first. There's some cancers that would respond better to immunotherapy. We're starting to get at this because one of the genetic tests that we're running gives us a look not just at the, at the prognosis, is the cancer going to progress or not, but can actually look at the entire expression pattern across the whole genome. Um, so it can tell us, is this a cancer that's being driven by pathways that will respond to chemotherapy versus pathways that will respond to hormonal therapy? And it turns out, if you look at whole sets of genetic pathways, these are what we call these heat maps where we look at, you know, the red dots here are ramped up genes, the blue dots are turned off genes. Um, we can start to see these patterns emerge in prostate cancer that, interestingly enough, look a lot like breast cancer and like bladder cancer. And we're starting to find these commonalities across cancers. And we're really getting toward the era, we think this is going to be here very soon, where the diagnosis is not going to be you've got a prostate cancer or you've got a breast cancer, but you have a cancer driven by pathways A, B, and C that happen to start in your prostate. And we're going to treat that a lot more like a breast cancer driven by the same pathways than we would a prostate cancer driven by different pathways. So what's the bottom line for today? You know, what do we do at UCSF currently? Um, like I said, some of these tests we really are using quite a bit. We use MRI quite heavily here, knowing that we have particularly robust expertise and experience here. Um, we use the 4K test, which is this blood test, and the Select MDX, which is the one with the very good negative predictive value. Um, and the Decipher test, which is the one that gives us that whole genome expression we're using quite a bit as well. Um, and we have a lot of interest in this active surveillance question. If a man has a reassuring MRI and a reassuring biopsy, can we skip the next couple biopsies just by repeating the MRI? It makes a lot of sense conceptually, but we've got to prove that this is safe and appropriate. So to wrap up, you know, I, I hope I've made clear that prostate cancer is a very heterogeneous disease. If we want to take back the terms of the conversation from the the screening task force, uh, we need to prove that we're doing an appropriate job as a specialty managing prostate cancer and that this has to be done reflecting the risk profile of each individual cancer. And the current clinical standard sets a pretty high bar for accuracy that we're trying to improve with these novel biomarker tests, novel imaging tests. You know, but again, how to exactly use them in clinical practice today in 2017 is still not quite clear. Uh, the next generation of these tests, I think, will get even more exciting. The talk you're about to hear from Dr. Karanowitz on carbon-13 uh, carbon spectroscopy could potentially be a massive game-changer for the whole endeavor, um, which stresses the point that we're not even at the end of the beginning of the story, let alone near the end of the story. So it's very much a stay tuned, and there's always a ton of exciting work being done here. And I appreciate you all coming out in the evening to hear a little bit about it. So thank you. I'm going to actually, as uh, Dr. Cooperberg pointed out, I'm going to be telling you about a new um, metabolic imaging test that we pioneered here at UCSF that might be a game changer in helping us um, um, personalize the care of prostate cancer patients. So we, we hear a lot about precision medicine, and you've heard it described quite well by the prior speakers. What we're really trying to do is tailor medical treatment to the individual characteristics of each patient. So this, this scan from, um, from Star Trek here, this picture here, and this is what we really love to be able to do with personalized medicine, just have that little transponder or whatever it is and be able to take it to your house and tell you exactly what's wrong with you. Unfortunately, we're not there yet. But I'll tell you about some new technology where we're kind of moving in this sort of uh, direction of really uh, being able to individualize what's going on. The technique I'm going to be telling you about is... Um, termed hyperpolarized carbon-13 MRI, MR imaging or spectroscopic imaging. And 
we're not going to just do away with all the great things you just heard about. We're going to be trying to add this new technology to the best that we can do right now and then perform the clinical trials necessary to show exactly what we can do with this. Some of the things that Dr. Cooperberg pointed out, we really need to understand, particularly when we're bringing a new technology and biomarkers into the clinical setting, is what do they really mean and, and, and how, how well can we use them in, in everyday clinical practice. So I'll tell you about a couple of clinical trials that are actually ongoing here at UCSF right now in which we're trying to discern some of these questions or answer some of these questions. So you've heard this phrase probably a million times, a picture is worth 10,000 words. It actually showed up in a uh, New York Times magazine ad way back in 1920, uh, 1926. But sort of our philosophy, and you've heard a good bit about it, is that multiple concordant pictures provide the most com confident identification and characterization of prostate cancer in individual patients. What am I talking about? I'm talking about that multi-parametric exam that, you, uh, that Antonio and, and, and um, Matt both told you about. They also pointed out that we have a lot of experience here, 24 years of continuous funding and development of this exam here alone, um, which has gone fully clinical in the last a couple of years. Um, we'll talk a little bit about integrating it, um, integrating PET. You heard about PSMA PET and, 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 and multiparametric MRI. We have new scanners today, one here at UCSF, in which we can do both these techniques on the same scanner. It's called a PET MRI. As Antonio pointed out, we have over 200 publications in this arena over the last 30 years that I've been here. If we add in our new hyperpolarized publications, we're up to around 300. And we scan a lot of patients. I was really surprised that Antonio was saying that we're going to be close to 2,000 um, this year. And many of these patients are the ones that, that Dr. Cooperberg um, has told you about, men who have a positive biopsy. It looks like they have clinically um, less aggressive or insignificant disease, but we really want to know if something was missed. So a lot of those patients are referred for our multiparametric MRI by, by doctors such as Dr. Cooperberg. And you heard from Antonio that we use this information directly now in clinic, fusion with the ultrasound guided biopsy, um, targeting of therapy, doing focal therapy, and things of that sort. So, so there's, there's a lot going on. So where does this hyperpolarized MRI fit into this story? Well, I, I put up multiple images. This is, again, um, the multi-parametric exam. This is the apex of a gentleman who has a very relatively large prostate cancer here on the right lobe, the left side of the image. This is an anatomic image. We kind of see a low T2 over here. We, we can look at um, diffusion-weighted images, which tell us a little bit about the cellularity of the cancer. We know that the normal tissue is replaced by sheets of cells oftentimes in the setting of prostate cancer, which show up as a reduction in signal on the ADC images where these red arrows are. We can do another type of diffusion-weighted image where the contrast is switched so that we know that this is due to really cellularity and not to other changes in the prostate that might lead to a decrease in signal intensity. We can look at perfusion in the same exam. We can look at the uptake of a contrast agent, which tells us how much microvasculature has been developed in this tumor. And this is critical for the tumor to grow and to spread is that it has to have the metabolites, the, the substrates to come in, as well as oxygen in order for it to grow. 
And then finally, we pioneered a technique called proton spectroscopic imaging in which we could actually look at the steady state metabolism within the same prostate. So this multiparametric exam has given us not a lot of information about the tumor itself, its metabolism, and its microenvironment in an individual patient, in yourself. So that we, this is not a generalization that's taken from thousands of uh, patients. This is in in your cancer. And we can, this is the setting that we do in the setting for looking at localized disease, but when we want to look at metastatic disease, as you heard from Antonio, um, we move to the PAT and the PSMA PAT and several other varieties of PAT, which you've also heard talks early on about, um, is, is being used to look at the metastatic. So when we add our hyperpolarized MRI, we're going to be comparing and figuring out exactly how much does that add to all these other parameters and how can we use it, okay? So what is hyperpolarized C13 MRI? Well, basically, it's a technique in which we take a metabolic substrate. What's the most common substrate for, for metabolism in our body? Glucose, okay? The substrate we're going to be talking about is 1C13 pyruvate, which turns out to be at the bottom of glycolysis product of glucose, and which sits at a crossroads of metabolism that we can use. Now, most of the imaging we do, we look at water. We're mainly water. So we can overcome the insensitivity of magnetic resonance imaging because we're looking at water. But when we want to look at metabolites, their concentrations are hundreds of thousands of fold lower than water in the body. So the way we can gain our sensitivity is through this pre-polarization step in which we can enhance our signals by putting all of our spins in this higher energy level, okay? So this is called DNP polarization, and this is a clinical polarizer that sits right next to our scanner um, right here at UCSF in which we can take this metabolic substrate and we can polarize it and bring its sensitivity up to what we see with water. The beauty of this new technology is that we can do this on standard MRI systems, like a 3T or 1.5T MRIs that exist here and across the world right now in most hospitals. We need to use some new coils, which allow us to look at both protons and carbon. Uh, some, Some adaption needs to be done in that scenario. And then what we're going to be doing is we're going to take a molecule. Let's go back to our chemistry days. So this is a pyruvate molecule. And this little red dot here is where we place the C13 synthetically. Most carbon in nature is carbon-12. Carbon-13, which is the NMR form of of carbon, is only 1.1% natural abundance. We synthetically put in 100% natural uh, uh, C13 in that spot, thereby enhancing our signal. Also, no background signal because the rest of the carbons in our body are mainly carbon-12, which we can't see. Then we're going to pre-polarize this and get even more signal, and, it's going to, and we're going to inject this into a patient IV, just like we do with our standard gadolinium contrast agents that we're doing right now. As I will show you, this will give us the sensitivity to watch the substrate come in our body, go into the tumor, be taken up by the tumor, and actually watch where it goes. So one of the reactions we're going to be very interested in is the transformation of pruvate to lactate, which is a reduction reaction, which is catalyzed by the enzyme lactate dehydrogenase. Okay? This sensitivity is going to allow us to do this very quickly, 
on the order of tens of seconds. We can cover the whole prostate, the whole pelvis, and we're moving on now to cover the whole body as we do in positron emission tomography. And we can take and we can look at the ratio of this lactate pyruvate or as I'll show you, the dynamic change or the flux of pyruvate to lactate, and we can calculate images and overlay them on top of our anatomic images, um, which I'll show you can be used to not only identify the fact that there's prostate cancer there, but answer those critical questions that we just heard about. How aggressive is that cancer? Is this an indolent cancer or is this aggressive cancer that we're going to want to treat aggressively? Well, how does all this work? So let's, let's take a step back again to chemistry. Um, we take, we have our label molecule here, okay? And we, this gets into the cell and it can go um, multiple different directions metabolically, which it takes it through a number of different enzyme systems depending on the, whether there's cancer or normal tissue there or the aggressiveness of the cancer. And what this technology allows us to do is that when this carbon label here winds up in alanine in this position or lactate in this position or bicarbonate in that position, we see it at different frequencies. This is called the NMR spectra. Okay? The reason that these are at different frequencies is because that carbon is seen in a different chemical environment. So that causes its frequency to shift. We can take and we can form images of each of these frequencies simultaneously. Okay? And then we can use those images and overlay them on all the other information like the anatomic data to see exactly what's going on. What are we taking advantage of here? We're taking advantage of the fact that the prostate has very unique metabolism, and this metabolism changes with prostate cancer. It also changes, to genetic reasons, also changes due to environmental reasons, lack of perfusion changes in the microenvironment of, of, of the tumor. And so this is what this metabolism is going to allow us to do, is actually look at your cancer and look at how it's interacting with this microenvironment and how it's making it a tiger rather, rather than a pussycat, okay? which, is, which is something that we really need to know in order to treat it correctly. So what both the normal prostate and prostate cancer do is take up lots of glucose or pyruvate but the difference is, is where those carbons wind up, okay? And our technique can show us where they wind up. In a setting of the normal prostate, those carbons wind up in materials such as polyamines and citrate, which wind up in our sperm and act as fuels for, for, for that process. In the setting of prostate cancer, these carbons are diverted in different directions. They're diverted in the production of lactate, and there's lots of different reasons, which I don't have time to go into, for why tumors produce a lot of lactate. They're diverted into the tricarboxylic acid cycle to produce energy. And these tumors need lots of energy. And uh, beginnings of phospholipid metabolism, they're converted into alanine to make amino acids and other things that are necessary for proliferation. So all of these changes are going on, and we're going to use this in order to, to better image the cancer. So I'm going to just briefly tell you about two questions that we, we are trying to address right now in two separate clinical trials uh, using this technology at UCSF. One is that, that diagnosis, which you've heard a lot about, this identification of indolent versus aggressive disease. The other one is in the setting of advanced prostate cancer, cancer that's already spread or is in the process of spreading beyond the gland 
And what we really want to understand is can this metabolic changes tell us something about the development of therapeutic resistance at a time where we can bring a new treatment or a salvage treatment in and help uh, and better, more effectively treat this patient and prolong his life. Okay? We did the first phase one clinical trial here at UCSF. As in all phase one clinical trials, the major goal is safety. The other goal of this trial is feasibility, imaging feasibility. And we demonstrated both of these in, uh, in patients with prostate cancer. And basically, we actually saw that this new technique was giving us some new information. Picking up cancers we might have missed before, are those the important ones, as uh, Dr. Cooperberg told you about, or are those ones that we shouldn't be detecting? Well, we need to know the answer to this. This trial didn't have the full pathologic correlation, and the next trial that I'm going to tell you about does. But basically here, we show, again, one slice. Remember, everything we do is volumetric. Okay, so, but I'm only showing you one slice here. Here's our normal anatomic imaging, ADC maps, and then we have both our proton spectroscopy and our hyperpolarized carbon with the overlaid um, uh, maps, and we see that the hyperpolarized carbon picked up this tumor that was missed on our standard exam. The question is, is it important? The other thing we were able to show in this phase one clinical trial is that we could actually have the sensitivity to dynamically measure the conversion of pruvate to lactate in these tumors. This blue line, each point is a voxel in, from, from these different locations in which we see pruvate come in to the prostate and then start being metabolized to lactate. And you can see in the region of prostate cancer, we have lots of lactate being produced versus regions of vasculature and normal prostate where the levels are much lower. We can actually fit this data, and we can actually calculate the flux through this enzyme, a quantitative parameter of how fast we're producing lactate in, this, in individual patients, okay? High metabolic flux is, means prostate cancer, and as I'll show you, we have some new data showing that it is aggressive prostate cancer, and so this Correlation with pathologic grade is what's going on in a phase two clinical trial that's going on right now at UCSF. In pre-radical prostatectomy patients, so patients that are going to go on for surgery, that we have the truth, the whole mount pathology from the gland taken out that we can correlate with. So we can correlate these flux images with the truth of pathology. However, we would also like to correlate this with clinical outcomes. And so that's another second goal of this trial. Basically, here's an example. This, again, our T2 ADC maps and our hyperpolarized carbon with the corresponding whole mount section that we, we align with the imaging data after the gland is taken out. And we can see two regions of prostate cancer. One, a Gleason 3 plus 3 up in here, which has a flux which is about half of the Gleason 4 plus 3. Okay, a cancer potentially that might, we might not want to treat aggressively versus one that we probably do want to treat aggressively. So we can do this in three, uh, volumetrically. This is a patient with multifocal disease. These are the KPL images overlaid on top of the anatomic images. The scale on this map goes the higher, the, the brighter the color going from light blue into red, the higher the KPL flux, okay? And when we did this whole mount section, these regions of red, 
and pink here were regions of Gleason 4 plus 4 and 4 plus 3 cancer, very aggressive cancers, where the remaining cancer, the light blues and dark blues here, were in the 3, 3 plus 3 to 3 plus 4 range. So we're getting a feel now from these pathologic studies that in individual men we can map out not only whether they have aggressive disease, the spatial extent of this aggressive versus more indolent disease. So in the setting of advanced prostate cancer, we're looking at the development of resistance to one of the most common therapies used when we suspect cancer has spread outside the prostate, and that's androgen deprivation therapy. Okay? And we have primarily, we go after this, and we have some new secondary agents called androgen um, pathway inhibitors that allow us to treat these men and prolong their lives. We now have a clinical trial in which we're looking at can our changes in KPL or flux from pyruvate to lactate tell us something about this development of resistance to this therapy? Because almost all men will respond initially, but everybody will eventually evolve to a castrate resistant state. The, the problem with cancer is that it can adapt, and it adapts very quickly. So it can grow without the growth factor. Okay? So one more quick example. Here's a patient um, that had a very extensive cancer. Out, uh, we can see a very large tumor here, very metabolically active, a lot, very high pruvate to lactate conversion. This, again, is one slice. He went on for three months of this primary androgen deprivation therapy. Since PETS suspected some micrometastatic uh, lesions, he went on uh, a, chemo, uh, a chemo agent, doxytaxel, um, and... Lo and behold, three months after initiation of this therapy, we see that this patient has completely responded. The hyperpolarized metabolism has gone away. But interestingly, our standard anatomic imaging and ADC has not resolved itself. So it may be telling us something at an earlier time point that predicts that this patient is responding positively. And in fact, here's the three-dimensional display of this same patient, and we see throughout the gland this complete loss and this corresponded to, to a very large decrease, clinical decrease of, of, of its PSA, serum PSA. And one year out now, his PSA it remains undetectable. So he's still responding. There's, I told you about pyruvate. There's lots of other probes, just like what you've heard about positron emission tomography. There's a number of different molecules that give us different types of information about metabolism, microenvironment, redox status, interstitial pH, which are in the process of being clinically translated into patients. And it will be quite interesting to see what role they play in the future. I'd like to finish up with a thank you to you all for coming out and listening to us tonight. Um, but really to talk a little bit about the type of translational research that occurs here at UCSF and the reason I've been here for 30-some-odd years um, doing research and, 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 and translating new imaging exams and biomarkers into the clinic, and that is that we all work together. We have a very large Ph.D. population here, both students and faculty, who are integrated with our our physicians, our radiologists, as well as radiation oncologists, our urologists, uh, lots of people involved in this process, and it, it really is necessary. Another part of the team that's absolutely necessary if we want to bring this out from university into general clinical practice is working with industry and getting it out there as well. And of course, 
it always takes funding. And so all the funding that we've gotten over the years to do this is also quite important. And with that, I'd like to thank you for your attention. And I think we're going to take questions now, right, Antonio? Do we all want to come up, the three of us? Yeah. So ask away. Informally. Yeah. Yes, sir. How can we improve the process of referral? And I'll let our clinical, my clinical <laughs> colleagues answer that easy question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, let me, let me summarize the uh, United States healthcare system in you know, 30 seconds or, or less. Uh, look, the reality is that we live in a time when you know, insurance companies restrict access. I mean, this is, this is the truth of it. And some insurance plans refuse to allow people to come here to see us, they won't pay for it. And some people come and pay cash, other people change insurance, other people are never even told that there are services here that don't exist in other parts of the state. And it's a problem way above any of our pay grades uh, to deal with, unfortunately. Um, you know, and it's not at all infrequent that, you know, I will meet somebody for the first time who is here, not just for a second or third opinion before treatment, but has already been through two or three rounds of less than optimal therapy and kind of saying, well, why didn't I come here earlier? Nobody even told me it was an option, et cetera. So, you know, obviously those are unfortunate situations. We do, I mean, all the best we can do is kind of try to get the word out in the community with events like this and with our referring community of primary care physicians. Um, you know, the University of California broadly, you know, we have five, five health centers across the state. Uh, each one is a little bit different in terms of how it builds networks with referring physicians. Uh, UCSF is actually trying a lot more in just in the last couple of years to build referral networks. But when, you know, Aetna says we won't pay for it because we don't want to pay for it, there's very little you can do aside from complaining to the state insurance commissions. And I encourage everybody to do that. I mean, these companies... Entire job is to take money out of the premium dollar and keep it and not pay it to healthcare providers. That's how they make their money. So, you know, we can't fix that, but you all can, right? You're congressmen. <laughs> Serious. So, uh, having said that, too, there are certainly lots of patients that come here for specific services that are not. So, even if a patient's not allowed to see me as a surgeon or a urologist, they may be able to get imaging tests done here. So, PSMA PET, for example, we are the first center in North America that has access to PSMA PET, and we have a lot of patients that are coming in to have that particular test done, even if they're not able to see us uh, for, for clinical decision-making. I'd like to add to this a plug about clinical trials, too. So, so we have multiple. I told you about two. We have an active surveillance trial starting up. Um, I told you about decades of funding from the NIH. Many of those involve patient studies or clinical trials improving the multiparametric exam or, or trying to optimize it. Um, so if, if you or, or somebody you know it fits one of the criteria of the clinical trials ongoing, you can get this free high-end imaging um, and, and, and oftentimes full radiology reports by being involved in those clinical trials. So that's, that's another way to do it. It's not, the, it's not the global answer that you're looking for, but, yeah. How much does the PSMA PET scan cost? <laughs> Um, I don't know, because um, it's, it's right now, it's not really a clinical scan yet. Um, it's available here through no research project, and no, any research cost is not a real cost, and, but it's expensive. No. Well, it's a, yeah, right. Yeah, it's, I was going to say 10000 but yeah. <laughs> no, the outpatient, the outpatient. Oh, but no, it's not available 
for all people, unfortunately. But the, I mean, the, the, the outer patient cost here currently is about eight or nine hundred dollars for the actual tracer. And then the studies that are ongoing cover the cost of the study. Now, I will tell you, these, the study, study, this PSMA PET has been broadly available in Germany and Australia for a couple of years now, and there it's like three or four hundred dollars. You know, imaging costs a lot more here than most other places in the world, and for reasons that have always been a bit unclear to me. But um, it's called insurance, you know. Well, yeah, right, right, right. You're not that unclear. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> let me make a comment about the process. So when we have new probes, whether they be a PET probe or a, uh, a hyperpolarized probe or things of that sort, we, we run these trials under what's called an IND, um, and that allows us to test these things out in patients um, on a limited level. Uh, some of the probes, like PSMA PET, is going through another process called the NDA, which allows institutions to recoup their costs and makes those those exams more clinically available. Um, unfortunately, setting the price on things, as as we just heard, is 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 a little bit of a black box that I've never completely understood. Um, it's unfortunate. I, th I think imaging is overpriced, um, um, but um, unfortunately, it's out of our hands. And again, um, it's probably more of a political thing and dealing with the insurances companies. That's actually one of the fun things of being in academia. We don't get involved directly with it. <laughs> so the question, again, is the integration of PSMA, uh, PAT, and active surveillance, um, diagnosis and, and management. Um, that's actually, we're collecting data in a broad you know, group of patients. There's not a lot of data yet. Um, one of my... My wishes, at least, I'll put it like that, is that we'll be able to get those 5 to 20% invisible tumors and better characterize those. I think we do a reasonable good job with things that we can see. Um, but when we can't, we need something else. And that PSMA might be one way. Um, the trial for the focal therapy, which sort of gets some of the people that could potentially be active surveillance patients, depending on criteria they use, we'll look at that. We're going to use PSMA on that particular study. So. PSMA, uh, there, so we are part of a trial actually looking at one, a different PSMA agent than the one we have here um, in the active surveillance setting. Um, you know, personally speaking, I think I'm actually a little more excited about hyperpolarized carbon spectroscopy in this particular arena just because the anatomic detail is better. And if you think about what is the question in an active surveillance patient, we know there's cancer there from the biopsy. The question is, have we missed something worse? Um, and I'm not sure that PSMA will answer that question. PSMA is by far the most sensitive test we've ever had to find cancer outside the, outside the prostate. But what we have to realize is it still takes 100 million cells in one spot to light, a, light up a PSMA scan. It's not 500 million or a billion, which is what a bone scan takes. Um, and, you know, those number of cells are really small. So, you know, if you have 1,000 cells or 10,000 cells hiding in a rib or a bone or a lymph node, we will not see those with even the best PSMA scans under the, under the sun. So, you know, when we think about what do we want to do active surveillance better, yeah, it's making sure we haven't missed something worse, but it's also um, do we really appreciate the full anatomic extent of the cancer? And I think we're going to get there maybe a little, a little faster with MRI personally. I mean, that's, that's crystal ball, but... Uh, yeah. You talked about invisible tumors. What does that mean? Does it mean that uh, there's something that... No, that's, that's a good question. So when I, when I say... We actually have... I have a fellow looking at the data right now. And we do an MRI, and I may identify an abnormality and describe it. 
using different ways, pyrads, for instance. Um, so when I call it negative, and I know based on the biopsy, for instance, that there's a tumor there, now, I missed the tumor, either because it's really not visible, because I didn't recognize an abnormality that is there, or because it's mimicking something. So I saw it, but I couldn't characterize it as cancer um, because it mimics uh, hyperplasia, for instance. So these are the three broad categories. But the fact is we were unable to say that it was there. Um, So that's what I'm saying about invisible. There are tumors that we're not identifying for one reason or another. We don't know what the proportion is of each cause, and that's what we're looking at right now. Um, So I asked this. Now, luckily, I had help get all the negative scans that had disease, and let's look at them. Let's try to figure out why. That's what I mean. So now, why does hyperplasia happen? And I'll give the urologist. Uh, <laughs> right. So, so the, other, the, other term, the, better, the other term for hyperplasia is BPH, you know, benign prostatic hyperplasia. It's extremely common as men get older for the prostate to grow. And hyperplasia, even though it sounds similar to some of the terminology that we use for cancer, has nothing to do with cancer. It just means that the cells in the prostate have gotten bigger. There's more of them. The prostate, cancer, the prostate gland has grown, but it's not cancer. And why it happens is actually a huge mystery. It's, it's, uh, it is not known why. Some, some men can grow a prostate 15 times normal size and not even know it happened. Um, other men, the prostate can grow by 10% and they cannot pee at all and they, and they come to see us. So it's extremely common, even more common than prostate cancer. But it has nothing to do with prostate cancer risk. So just because you have BPH does not increase the chances that you're going to grow, grow a prostate cancer or vice versa. But it, but it has its own appearance on MRI, which is why Antonio was talking about it. It, can, it has a look on MRI that usually is distinct from cancer, but sometimes can mimic cancer. Okay. One addition to our earlier question, do, do you have a, a database of potential participants in your uh, research events? In other words, if you do get a grant and you are able to study something specifically, do you have a database of people willing to come in? Um, if you call email the database, then yes, we get a few of those, <laughs> but not in a. No, um, Locally, in, in the, this community where there's considerable support for UCSF and yeah. all your departments, not just yours. Yeah, I would say we don't have a database, uh, but we do work with a lot of patients and a lot of patient advocacy, so we have the contacts, uh, but not necessarily a database of names. Actually, the can the cancer the cancer. Yeah, yeah. The Cancer Center actually does have an effort right now that we are, in fact, one of our active surveillance studies is in the pilot of trying to use our electronic medical record system to do this. So if we open a new trial, it will be able to kind of scan through the charts of the last thousand, or every, everybody that we've seen in the last year and, you know, send out a little automated email saying, hey, there's a new study that you might be interested in, you know, contact us yeah. for more information. Uh, so that will actually help. Um, it's a great question and, and something we've never done well before. It would be great to know people that are willing to do it and we contact yeah. them rather than everyone. But marketing, oh, we're surrounded by all sorts of marketing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what they do all the time. They're yeah. very skilled yeah. at it, they don't produce anything new. <laughs> well, there's very tight regulations in terms of what we're allowed to, you know. There's also the clinical trials.com. Right? Yeah. 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 Yeah, and uh, the, our website also has all the information, so you know, they're listed. Was there one more? Yeah. 
uh, uh, I, I, at one point I kind of lost you on the, on the uh, how many years ago was the recommendation changed? Oh, yeah. 2012. 2012. Okay, so, um, uh, but, but you mentioned that there was uh, a reissuance of the, of the recommendations. Can you talk about that? So, yeah. So, just uh, in May of this year, the task force put out a new draft recommendation, now shifting the recommendation from a D, which means don't screen anybody, to a C, meaning there may be a benefit, the harms might outweigh the benefits, but you should at least have a conversation with your patient, you know, to a primary care doctor, about the harms and benefits of screening. With that recommendation, if that becomes finalized, they will be much more in line with every other major guideline organization, the AUA, the American Cancer Society, AUA is the American Neurologic, the American Cancer Society, the NCCN, which is the Cancer Center Network. They all have their own guidelines, and most and almost every guideline recommends some variation on this shared decision-making. It's a whole different conversation, you know, how the D really happened and all the ways they misinterpreted the evidence and all that sort of thing. Um, the new guideline is way far from perfect. It is better. Uh, one of the reasons they are shifting, actually, is, uh, and they, they refer to this explicitly, is the fact that we are over-treating less. They actually explicitly refer to that, that JAMA article that I showed you, um, which was the best evidence to date as of two years ago that we were doing more active surveillance nationally. So this, we, we think this new recommendation is going gonna, is gonna to stick. Um, you know, it's a whole different problem. The task force, I mean, there, there are no experts on the panel. There's no oncologists, urologists, cancer epidemiologists, cancer statisticians. By, you know, by law, this is the way the panel's set up. So it's, there's some major limitations in their expertise. Uh, that's a great question. So the, so the question, I, th I think the, the heart of the question is, you know, recommendations as, as to what to do into PSA screening, you know, as, as a man goes through PSA screening over the years. So the short answer is no, there are no guidelines on that. Um, there are, there are, there are, there's a pretty fair consensus that there is a point where you can stop, you know, whether that's 70 or 75, you know, there's some argument about that. We tend to focus more on biologic health than chronologic age. You know, there are men who are 70 going on 58, and there's men who are 70 and will be lucky to make it to 70 and a half. Uh, and that's a very different uh, clinical scenario, clinical context. Um, it, you know, it turns out the PSA level itself is incredibly predictive. So if you've got a PSA of one or less at age 60, you're pretty much good for life. Your likelihood of dying of prostate cancer falls to 0.3% at that point. If, and that's, and that's the, the median. So don't forget, you know what? The whole controversy on, on PSA is about the elevated PSAs, but when, if we screen the population, most men have a PSA of about 0.7 at, at age 50 or 55. And again, they can write off prostate cancer as a worry for the next three decades. Um, it's, it's obviously for the, the men in the gray area where it's a bigger problem. So if you've had, if, you know, for somebody who's 70 and has never had a PSA test before, it's probably worth a conversation. But if they've had a check every couple years from 50 to 70 and it's still 1 or 1.2, you can probably stop safely. Um, but there are no hard guidelines on this. The guy, because the state of the the state of affairs there is, primary care doctors are more confused than ever, and most of them either say, "I'm going to screen nobody because it's one less thing to worry about," or "I'm just going to check the box on the PSA form every single year for everybody because it's one less thing to, you know, think about." And neither one of those is the right answer. Yeah, yeah. I will say, don't get me started on the lack of recognition in these guidelines for the higher risk that African-American men face. 
Uh, if you want to complain to somebody, the chair of the guidelines task force is the new chair of epidemiology here at UCSF. She's actually African-American herself. Um, there is some text in there about African-American men face higher risk of disease, and maybe you should think about it a little bit differently. But they don't translate that anywhere to, yeah, you really should think harder about screening earlier, screening more aggressively. Um, you know, we just had, we, we just had a, a, a prostate program here. We have a, every three months we have a research symposium about something. This past month, it was all about the cancer disparity. And there's actually an effort in San Francisco right now that the, our cancer center is sponsoring called SFCAN, where the goal is to eliminate cancer disparity in the city and county of San Francisco. And I'm part of the prostate task force. And a lot of what we're doing is this idea of getting the word out, specifically in communities where the docs are treating African-American men, to focus on screening in that population. Now, we don't have... There is definitely no guidance on a difference in terms of stopping age. There is a lot of pretty good circumstantial evidence that we should start earlier, that African-American men should get a baseline at 40 or 45. Um, but having said that, if you've got a low baseline, you know, if your PSA is under one, uh, then no matter whether you're white, black, or what have you, you're in good shape. Okay, so so they, this is kind of the gestalt, is you should start earlier, you should look very carefully. But again, if you make it to 70 with a PSA of 1, you're probably fine no matter, no matter what the additional risk factors. Okay, thank you. Sure, sure. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.